And my feelings about Mandatory Chapel were not that positive. And I nearly got suspended one semester because I racked up so many chapel skips. And I ended up having to pay $300, $300 or something in fines. So that was, was it worth it? <laughs> yes. But... <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. Revival at Asbury. It's not the first time, by the way. There have been revivals at Asbury going back as far as 1905, actually. I think that might be the first one. We're talking about a pretty niche story in the Christian world here. You're not well, going to see it, this one in the headlines anywhere. Right, and it did, it did. it's feeling less and less niche. So I first saw a few murmurings of this right around when it started happening. And I believe the date was February 8th. Now I could be, that sounds right. I yeah. could just g Google this right now, but I'm, I'm not <laughs> going to, but around that time, I started seeing people talking about a chapel service, a regular Wednesday chapel service. And by the way, I'm familiar with these regular chapel services. I went mandatory to chapel, mandatory Man chapel, mandatory chapel. I believe I've mentioned this, on the podcast before, but so I went to a small Bible college in, in the foothills of, of Georgia here, and we had mandatory chapel and my feelings about mandatory chapel were not that positive. And <laughs> I nearly got suspended one semester because I racked up so many chapel skips and I ended up having to pay $300, $300 or something in fines. So that was, was it worth it? <laughs> Yes, but, <laughs> <laughs> but here, but yes. And and so in my own experience, there were, there were a lot of, I'm just going to, I'll give you some of the, the cynical details here to. Well, yeah, just start way back. A lot like, of this. Because I'm guessing most people listening to this have no idea what we're talking about. So. Yeah. The, well, the atmosphere of a Bible college is a strange and surreal place. If you went to one, you'll know who you are. And there's a kind of strange solidarity there. But if you didn't, this isn't the regular college experience by by any means. But I can tell you, from my time, there were attempts to, oh boy, can I use the word engineer? Engineer revival, make it happen, push it to happen. Open mics were, were you know, happened and people shared things in front of the entire student body that should not have been shared in front of the entire student body. There were all sorts of confessions. They, they, usually these turned into very awkward moments. But all that to say, what's happening at Asbury right now doesn't look anything like that. What's interesting is there have been a number of mature perspectives on, on what's going on lately. And by, by mature, I mean people who, are, who, who, are, who have been Christians for a long time and also scholarly perspectives. So several professors have dropped in one Tom, Tom McCall and several others. I mean, some of these, these are people who teach analytic theology and subjects like that. So not especially prone to being, to hype and emotionalism, but several of them have dropped in and they are all saying a variant of the same thing, which is the atmosphere fear in there is, is incredibly calm and peaceful and gentle. And they don't want to leave and it's something that will stay with them for their for their whole lives and 
that that's a that's a very interesting and, they, and they're also i mean again so strikingly at odds with the notion of, of something that's an experiment in social engineering or emotionalism or people are being pushed this is the the overwhelming response is that this is a place of incredible peace and now it's you know it's getting filled to capacity people are making pilgrimages if we can use that word i i know some people actually on the ground here where i live who who have made a road trip to go to this chapel as well other schools are showing up at this chapel so it's drawing people it's getting more and more it's feeling less niche because now christianity today is reporting on it and now there are in kentucky there are pastors weighing in with their perspective in the local papers so it's gaining a lot of a lot of buzz However, Nathan, here's why I want to bring you in. My initial response to this is one of hesitancy. And it still is a little bit, but I feel a bit convicted about that. But I'm wondering mm. what your initial, as you take your own pulse on this, so to speak, what does that yeah. look like for you right now, Nathan? Well, f first of all, I think you have to point out that there, there's a high probability that something is going on there because... If you're listening to this, just run through your mind the last time that you went to church and then you thought, you know, I'd like to just stay here for seven days continuously. Um, you know, most people are looking at their watch. You certainly had the experience of how do you get out of chapel? Um, I so so here's my initial thought is that when I look at the reports of what's actually happening, I've been to the to the services that you've referred to as engineered, and they um they are not peaceful. It's it's if you're, I don't even think you have to be a super spiritually discerning person. Be like, nah, there's, there's too hard of a push and too hard of a pull here to try to make something happen. And usually it expresses itself not in quietness or peacefulness. So I think those are some right. pretty interesting, you know, so if uh, I'll just, okay, maybe this is terrible stereotype, but if it was a bunch of loud music and the kick drum and running around, jumping over pews, waving flags, I'd be like, ah, oh, yeah, we've seen this before. Um, but it's not that. So that's what gives me a bit of he hesitancy to too quickly critique or condemn it. I think I said to you initially, um, well, you know, we'll see what the fruit of it is in the future. That'll be part of either the authenticity of it. But on the other hand, I think there are some, like you said, Craig Keener talking about it and other people who are giving some updates. People are saying, no, we don't want to be flipping about this one. This does seem different. Um, so that's where I'm at. And I'm guessing we'll move into a direction where we talk about what we do with other people's religious experiences. But I'm, I think particularly since it was just an ordinary chapel and it didn't seem like anything uniquely was called for. It sounds like it started with like the closing song by the choir or something. Um, mm -hmm. that, which, right. Yep. Which, um, yeah, so so I think the I think the lack of or from what we know, the lack of forced nature behind this um makes it seem more compelling and authentic to me. Yeah, no, I mean the collective testimonies do seem to be indicating there's no there's no pressure at all. And or theatrics. That is yeah, no theatrics. And it is interesting to hear somebody like a Craig Keener weigh in. And of course, Craig Craig Keener, if you're not familiar with him look him up. He's an extremely respected New Testament scholar, very prolific, probably best known, Nathan. I mean, he's written a lot on the resurrection, but probably, I think, best known for his two volumes documenting cases of, of miracles. Which that would be my guess, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that basically, if you go through those accounts, 
that he you know compiled i mean and they're they're massive the the burden of proof is really on the skeptic because because of just the absolute yeah the the multiple you know diversity of examples that he gives so it's interesting to hear him somebody you have very credible witnesses here as well and people but here's where i want to move things in a bit of a different direction for just a second and so there was there was so first of all there was one article and we'll I'll drop all of these into the show notes so do have a look through them I think these these might be helpful to you this is the perspective of a pastor local pastor in I believe the Kentucky Press basically he's responding a little bit to the cynicism or what he perceives as cynicism on the part of many Christians when they initially in their initial responses to this so-called revival I don't find his piece very persuasive, though, to be honest with you, because there's a very there's there are serious reasons for why Christians are hesitant right now when it comes to <laughs> major public expressions of faith in the United States. Because I, I do think this takes us into the heart of some. Well, hang of on the, a second, though. Hang on a second, though. Yeah. yeah, but but this is very different than if this had been staged outside of school at the flagpole. It wouldn't sure. have gotten my attention. The fact that it happened in a chapel, that is not a strategic point of attempted cultural influence. So for me, the right. there's like the context here matters a lot. Um, it does. And, and so I, I think we do have a hesitancy, but that hesitancy often is on the public iterations of some of these things more so than the private. So I'm just, I'm just interrupting you to say that perhaps it's categorically different. Um, because of the actual physical context of where it is. Sure, and that's back true. to Cameron. And if you, tr- <laughs> well, and if you try to pick up your scalpel right here and start dissecting everything, you're going to find that a lot of those easily dissectable pieces just aren't here. And you, like Nathan said earlier, I've been in many of these chapels. You usually don't want to stay. So the fact <laughs> that people just don't want to leave that sanctuary or that auditorium is is highly revealing and yes it's not a it's not an especially strategic location and the kind of theatrics that make us easily kind of move on are also absent so there is that but christians i think are also gun shy at this point i mean so much so much has transpired and a lot of people are wary so I don't think that I would use the term cynicism here to describe some of these hesitant responses. I'm one of those hesitant responders. Now, I'm a little bit I'm moving a little bit more away from hesitancy here to be honest with you because just just a side note here, I think one of the key marks of God's people right now as a witness to the world will be peacefulness. Mm-hmm. Because I think yeah. that this is a moment that is and I've been saying it that is for, a fruit for, of the spirit. While. It is part of the fruit of the spirit. It is absolutely a fruit of a spirit. I think it's one that is going to be uniquely powerful in our witness right now because this is a moment that feels very out of control. And even, I don't think chaotic is too strong of a word. I'm not saying that we're living in chaos. I'm saying it often feels chaotic right now. It feels hectic. It feels like things are coming apart. It feels like you're seeing corruption in every single place in society, every sector from ministers to politicians to law enforcement. 
So to hear that it's a when you go in there, there's a there's a you don't want to leave. You don't want to look at your phone. You don't want to get that assignment in. You don't want to check your email. You don't you want to and you're just at peace. I think that is a highly revealing detail. But that said, I think some of those responses that even this pastor lists in the piece, well, revival is a is a long term commitment, and I think we need to wait to see <laughs> some you know pictures of long-term faithfulness and long-term results. I think that's a healthy response. Absolutely. I mean, because we are on the heels of a time when the church had some really strong influence and there were surges of emotional activity and surges of inspiration and excitement and commitment. And yet our cultural moment is not one that's punctuated by lots of faithfulness that we see on on a big on on a mass scale. So, I th- I think being care- we if you want long-term faithfulness and 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 depth, it's okay to have some hesitancy here. I don't think that means that you're a per- that you're a person without hope. I don't think that means that you're a cynical Christian. To uh summarize this in the words of my great-grandfather, I'll take you up a generation here on my grandpa quotes. Um he was fond of saying that in our interactions with the power of the Holy Spirit, that it's not how high you jump, it's how straight you walk when you land. Nicely said, yeah. And so that's a, um, I because I think we've, I think we, well, I'm thinking, you can think of Azusa Street Revival, the Toronto Blessing, there are all of these things punctuated throughout time where there are um, outpourings of religious um, fervor, emotion, experience, um, and, and I hope, I think it's true that all of us at different points in our own lives have had those as well. Um, perhaps not on the collective, like whole chapel full level, but you've been part of worship services or in your own personal worship, um, an increased sense of, we'll put it that way, um, the proximity and the presence and the goodness and the glory of God. So those are real. I guess the question I have is that when we're bouncing around in kind of the apologetic side of talking about evangelism and our faith and giving a reason for what is the role that our own personal experience plays in that. And let me say what I have said in the past, and then you can tell me if this is right or wrong. I've always said that my personal experience does not count as evidence for somebody else, but the way that that experience changes my life might be a really good indicator that somebody else might want to look into what it is that I believe. So I'm trying to walk a line there of, of this idea of my experience or like isn't communicable, like it isn't transferable onto somebody else. However, the depth and the impact that it has on me is a waypoint or is a marker um, for somebody else's to be interested in what it is I believe. I mean, think of this. You've most people have probably seen somebody from a different religion fervently worshiping. Um What's going on there? What's happening? I mean, there are very intense emotional forms of spiritual interaction in all sorts of religions all around mm-hmm. the world. Yep. Um, so I think the hesitancy that you're speaking of is to say that emotion does not correlate to truth. Sincerity does not correlate to stability. Um, and emotion does not always generate commitment. And so there's there's a proper order there that I think needs to happen of a commitment preceding emotion sort of thing that makes something starting seemingly almost accidentally in a chapel 
where you go because of the commitment and then the emotion follows from it seem categorically different to me than, hey, we're going to bring up, uh, this sounds terrible to say, but a, a religious hype person basically to get revival going around here. Um, what is the proper way to wrestle with that diversity of our own experiences in the context of knowing that other people have sincere experiences that aren't mm -hmm. true or real? Um, and the need for the communal nature of that and then the way in which that gets um, exercised and articulated collectively, these all seem to be important variables that I don't quite have my mind wrapped around yet. They are, and I think that's the right place to take the conversation. Give me your statement again on experience. Your personal experiences don't count as evidence for somebody else. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, Nathan? yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can't okay. believe something just based off my experience, um, but I can be a pointer to, I mean, that experience that I have in my testimony matters, but it, of course, it's not a, a hard data point. It's a pointer, not a proof. So it's a clue. Well, and also, I mean, human experience, I mean, experience, this is such a broad, and actually the word experience is not, not only is it broad, it's a, it's, it's deeply mysterious. I actually have in front of me here an, an entire massive scholarly tome on the in, <laughs> the intellectual history of uses of the word of experience <laughs> down the ages. And Let me slide my glasses up with my pointer finger as you say that. Yes, yeah, from a, a gentleman named Martin Jay, if you're interested, teaches at, I think, University of California, Berkeley. That's right. Yeah. But you can come, you can reach the end of that book, scratching your head on, it's one of those books that <laughs> it won't, if you want clarity on what experience means, it's not, it's not going to give you that. It's going to just only add more layers of complexity to it. But experience, of course, is, you know, though it has, it's, it's deeply mysterious in some ways. It's also an indelible part of being a person. So experience, you can't, you can't do away with experience in anything, even the most analytic of pursuits experience is going to play a part in it, you know, right? Your, your, your mental experience, your conscious experience of being taught and mastering a concept, so to speak. And so as that takes root in your mind and in your heart, and there's, there's, of course, it is communicable and it is translatable. So in that sense, it doesn't count as, so can you, some religious experience, and I'll use all the scary words here. That is, that's, you know, very subjective, right? Mm -hmm. And punctuated by strong emotions. Okay. All of those elements. And by the way, a lot of, a lot of human experiences have that. That can't count as necessarily direct evidence for somebody, but it certainly can serve as a powerful clue because even if let's say, let's take a different instance. Let's, let's take this out of the, the religious for just a second as a help, helpful thought experiment. Let's say I go to a concert, you know, it's going to be me because Nathan doesn't go to concerts. Nathan, <laughs> I go to a concert. <laughs> someday, someday, someday I'll drag Nathan to a concert. I go to a concert. I have a very powerful emotional experience. It's highly subjective, but I'm so excited about it and I'm very effusive about it. And so I, I begin to describe to Nathan the amazing skill of the musicians and how the volume and and really just the the subtlety of the performance and everything. Now I can I can give to Nathan quite a quite a bit there because again, on the basis of our shared humanity. Or let's say Nathan does something that's very Nathan-esque. He climbs a mountain or he goes canoeing or he goes on some outdoor adventure that would terrify the socks off of me. Now, 
he can't directly give me everything there, of course, because I didn't experience the canoeing trip, but he can he can give me quite a lot of it. So there there are different ways that we I mean, we communicate experience all the time and then and there's a kind of an immediacy to it and the emotions and all of that play an important role in our communication of that. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to religion, when it, if we're talking about a spiritual experience, then the stakes are higher because you're going to need to see inward, deep inward change. And that's the part where I'm sympathetic to Nathan's, you know, my own religious experiences don't count as evidence for somebody else in the immediate sense, because they're going to have to, they're going to have to see that evidence over the course of some time. They're going to have to see a whole inward disposition that testifies to the reliability of that experience. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I'm entirely comfortable with, with the way you've, you formulated that. I think in, <laughs> in certain apologetic, you know, contexts when we're talking, I think absolutely right. But in, in regular human day-to-day affairs, I think our experience is just, I mean, we're, it's so interwoven with everything that we do that you're going to get clues from it. But yeah, what about let's, I think maybe a, a good place to go here, Nathan, would be when we're talking about religious experiences, we're both Christians, but when, when somebody from another faith starts to recount a religious experience to us that is punctuated mm-hmm. by strong emotions, intensity, how do we how do we respond there? Let's say it's a it's a Mormon or it's a Muslim or it's a Hindu. This this of course happens. Yeah. I so I um yeah, the Mormon is a good one because the whole burning in the bosom idea um uh, exactly you you feel it intensely is good Uh, i remember watching an older uh, Hare krishna lady chanting on her porch one morning uh when i lived in texas yes people who are very into it let me let me answer that by shooting for an intermediate thing that i think might be helpful to people listening to this have you ever been in a service where somebody beside you is clearly feeling something different than you are um and you're sitting there like what's wrong with me and we might have talked about this before, actually, um, <laughs> yeah, of like why in some context do, does something's really happening for somebody there. Um, and so the more stoic and analytic among you uh, might be saying, you know, a lot of this is fabricated. There's the Rich Mullins quote, that's not the Holy Spirit, that's the kick drum, uh, you know, for, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, producing. I to, I've told you, I think I've told on here the story before when I visited a church and I was the only person in the entire congregation that didn't respond to the altar call. Um, oh yeah, that's a classic you know, story. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's a good day in the life of Nathan. Uh, I was I was going to so many churches and just figuring stuff out and looking around. I also hitchhiked in a horse and buggy to an old order Mennonite church that week, also. So that was really broad extremes there, <laughs> in some ways. But um, of I think there's a second guessing that can happen to the person who says, "Well, everybody else seems to be connecting at, with this at a much more emotional level than I am. What's wrong with me?" Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think you even have to go to another religion to have questions about how it is that you should. So I I guess that's the thing is that there isn't a direct prescriptive biblical element or narrative of how you should quote, feel your faith. Um, how you should live it out is clear, but what the experience of that is, isn't. Right. And so I guess one way to put this in very practical terms is, does the experience pass that livability test? And so 
again, if we're if we're speaking from a, a Christian standpoint, we do have a we do have a clear livability test. We do have a clearly outlined mode of of life Christians follow, and we also we also know that and not to get into darker territory, but we, I mean we know that we are spiritual creatures, and there is I mean spiritual warfare is all around us, and there are many many spiritual experiences, and many of them are counterfeit spiritual experiences. Sure, yeah, and we get our and you own can do desires the math on what what yeah what the he, source is. <laughs> yeah, and we can get our own spirit and our own desires mixed up in thinking that it's God's will as well. So, sure, um, our ability to produce things on our own are are real. I, I guess, and you know, coming back around, like I'm totally thrilled for everybody who's there at the Asbury Chapel. I think that's wonderful. Um, I think this probably is a good thing for them in their lives. Um, but we should also, the, I, so here's, here's where part of the tension comes in is the people that experience their faith in these categories frequently quickly mm-hmm. grow into an expectation that everyone should in order to prove their faith is genuine. And I think that's sure. where some of the hesitancy mm-hmm. comes from. Um, and I'm not going to say it's denominational. I think it comes down to personality type sometimes just as much as anything else of, of how people richly experience something. Um, that expresses itself not just in worship, but in how you cheer at a basketball game. Um, there are more expressive and um, physically engaged people with like making their emotions known. So that's, uh, so I think you can be, you can be happy for somebody when they experience something special without normalizing it mm-hmm. or feeling less than yourself. And without, I don't, I, do, I, I just personally don't feel any need to make an immediate judgment or conclusion. If it's of the Lord, awesome. May their kind prosper and increase. Um, and if it isn't, may the Lord put godly people around them to help them process it correctly. Um, yeah. And I hope that it does bear legitimate fruit, but ultimately whether or not it produces good fruit is not for me to calculate. Uh, we'll let the Lord work that out and know about it in eternity. So I'm kind of in a seat of that's exciting. That's interesting. Um, and we'll see. And and don't feel a real compulsion to say more than that one way or another. No, I think that's a healthy response. And I think I want to give one more just word of of caution, and this is speaking very much from the place that I often occupy here. A while ago, I gave a talk for the C.S. Lewis Institute, and the title that they'd given me was Deconstructing Evangelicalism. And so there is there's one there's one thing that you can do here that I think some of us would be prone to do, and you can... You can look at the tangled history of revivals in the United States, and history will do what history always does. You will get a a tangled and complex picture that is anything but neat, mm-hmm. and you'll see numerous examples of abuse and misuse, but you'll also see something else. I opened that talk, and I think I confused some people when I did this, but I'm really glad I did. I opened that talk very deliberately with a quote from Pascal. And it sounds a little bit cryptic at first, but I want to bring it in here again. And he says this, he says, the motions of grace, the hardness of the heart, external circumstances. Motions of grace, the hardness of the heart, external circumstances. 
And he's really describing three dimensions of reality when he says that. And it's easy for me to forget that. Now, he starts with the motions of grace because if, if, if God is real, if at the heart of reality is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so then all is grace. The fact that we have breath in our lungs, that we, that we get to live and exist, everything is shot through with grace. And I always love those words in Colossians where Paul tells us that in Christ, all things hold together. He is actively sustaining everything all the time. Everything is shot through with grace. But why don't we see it? We don't see it because the hardness of our hearts clouds our vision. And then at the very end of that train, the last dimension that, that Pascal mentions is external circumstances. And that external circumstances are important. That's the subject of history. We're looking at just the external circumstances. But let me just tell you, if you limit your view to only the external circumstances and factor out all everything else, God's grace and the hardness of the heart, it's going to be a very barren and empty view. That is the road of deconstructing, actually. When you take something apart and there's nothing left, there's no remainder. It's that zero-sum game. And so I think the word of caution here is let's not get too reductive in the way we look at this. Yes, do we have at our disposal tools to dissect this? and to take this apart, and to explain this away. Yeah, we do. We absolutely do. And many of us are going to be predisposed to go in that direction right right now. But I think Nathan's perspective here is really helpful to, first of all, to be hopeful that this, that this is something that's really, that, that is really happening, that's going to bear long-term fruit, and also to be happy for those who are there, who are clearly hey, Christ does promise his peace to his people. So, I mean, this... Yes. Yeah. And the fact that it's... that overwhelmingly, these people are all describing a sense of peace and rest and gentleness in the midst of a very chaotic moment. And these are people who are, by the way, reliable, credible witnesses. That's not nothing. And that's something to be celebrated even. So I think that's, yeah, that's where I would, I would leave it there. Yeah. I, th I think, you know, one of the um, articles that you sent me talking about it had Jonathan Edwards definition of what real revival is. And you're talking about it not being neat and tidy. And I remember reading um, Marsden's biography of Jonathan Edwards and looking at some of the horror show that accompanied some of the revivalism, the suicides. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's some weird stuff going on there around yeah. what we, we kind of look back in history is like, Oh, here's an awakening or here's a revival or um, reality is much more, uh, entangled. And so I, um, I'm thankful for times of worship where, you know, people talk about praying in the spirit or singing in the spirit, but there's real room too for thinking in the spirit. And so I hope that whatever your worship services look like in the upcoming days, that you have those moments of just real peace. And that comes from a real clarity of like, who's actually in charge of the world. <laughs> And then what are my responsibilities as a result of that? And so there's something about the manifest presence of the glory of God that reveals to you a splendor that takes a lot of pressure off of us as individuals um, as far as the fabrication of goodness and peace and prosperity goes. So 
lean into that. I think seek it and yearn for it. Um, but also don't be surprised if you really do experience that, but you experience it in a different way that it manifests itself. Uh, maybe not an emotional way. Maybe it's a time of peace, like all sorts of ways, depending on your personality, where you're at, um, your other experiences in life. I think let's not try to shoehorn how God presents himself to us um, into other people's categories of experience. And so be open-handed before the Lord. I like to pray, Lord, I want everything that you have for me and nothing more. Um, and so that's a, a spot of saying, I do seek the goodness of the Lord. And I hope that for everyone who is listening here today as well. Um, may the goodness of the Lord be manifestly known in your life and experienced in a real and tangible way. It is a real possibility. It's a real promise of Christ. Um, and it is real because the Holy Spirit is real and the resurrection is real. So let's be careful not to mock or judge anyone else's experience, but let's also test the spirits. And so we have both of those as a command in scripture that give us a wonderful openness to on the backside of our commitments and convictions, experience a rich emotion um, that doesn't change our conviction, but uh, enlivens it and makes it uh, a real joy and pleasure at times. So seek those things, keep your commitments and your convictions uh, at the forefront and be open to what the Lord wants to do in and uh, through you next. That's part of the fun of being a Christian because we don't quite know how this thing will go. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.